On November 3, 2020, Americans went to the polls. The world held its breath, and more than 48 hours later, it is still waiting to exhale. With counting still continuing in Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and North Carolina, we do not yet know whether America has re-elected Donald J. Trump. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you an updated city view on election 2020. Thank you so much, David. Um, uh, yes, we're still in the middle in the thick of things, but uh, it looks like we, we have a little bit more information now, 48 hours after the, uh, the, um, the, the polls have closed and then we did uh, just, you know, in the election night and the next day. So, you know, we, we know which path this is going. So this is a good point in time to look at the crystal ball questions and to check out how good um, David and Linda Jeta at predicting the future. So let me look at the things that you said just about four or five days ago, just a few days before the election. Um, we've looked into the crystal ball, and, um, and number one, will we know the result of the election on November 3rd? You both said no, and you were right about that. Uh, we don't. Actually, things have changed quite a bit um, after that. Um, number two, will Joe Biden win the popular vote? Yes. Both of you said yes. Um, now, are you, uh, are you surprised by the extent of uh, his win, or would you have expected uh, an even more sweeping level of support? What do you guys think, Indajit? Uh, well, he's got a record number of votes in any American presidential election, uh, 72 million or thereabouts. Um, and I guess we knew the turnout was going to be pretty high, given the early voting was up to 100 million, 102 million. I think what surprised me a little more is President Trump's uh, tally of about 67 or 68 million, which isn't, which is seven or eight million more than he got in 2016. I don't think I anticipated that the increased turnout would also impact him quite as much. In fact, I, I guess I thought there would probably be a, a diminution of the size of his vote from from the earlier period that these sort of secular Trumpists, the Obama Trumpers, uh, would return to the fold because of the pandemic in particular. I think that's probably, I feel I need to understand and try to think through and work out what was going on. Yeah, what about you, David? Uh, did you have the, a similar impression or something else in, with respect to the, the popular vote? Yeah, I mean, I was really impressed with Biden's result, I mean, it's, as, as Indrajit said, it's the largest uh, result for a presidential candidate in American history. Uh, but the thing that really struck me is how that didn't translate down the ballot for the Democrats, right? Uh, one of the reasons against running someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders was this idea that uh, it would contaminate the Democratic vote down the ticket, it would prevent them picking up mm -hmm. Senate seats, it would prevent them uh, from picking up you know, other, other offices that were in play. And while Biden's done really well, the Democrats had a very disappointing night with regards to the Senate, and they've lost seats in the House, I believe. Uh, so this wasn't a great day, I think, for the Democrats in terms of overall turnout. People voted for Biden, and that's good. But uh, the blue wave did not manifest for them, uh, despite this big presidential vote. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, that's question number seven. Uh, let, me, let me jump to question number seven. 
uh, the crystal ball question from a few days ago, uh, number seven. Uh, will there be a de Democrat trifecta, House, Senate, White House? Um, Inderjit said yes. Uh, David said no, but I think David just wanted to be a contrarian. You, you were sort of, uh, you know, you weren't quite sure whether it's going to happen. You, you had some sort of, some expectation that it might happen too. Um, so, um, but you know, this speaks to what David was just saying. There was no blue wave, right? In Madrid. Uh, so, you know, this is contrary think, to what he expected. I think the current count for the Senate is 48-48, with a special runoff of two seats in Georgia, I think. Mm. Um, so I guess if Biden wins, then is that a path to a 51-49? I, I think there might still be a very thin path for them mm. to get to sort of a 50-seat a fifty seat Senate, but I, I think it'd be quite surprising uh, in Georgia. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I was being sort of deliberately contrarian, I think, but I did have some doubts about... Uh, about the democratic trifecta simply because of the incumbency problem with the American Senate. And, you know, anyone who looks at the Senate will tell you it's incredibly difficult to dig someone out once they're in. And the Democrats seemed incredibly hopeful that they would be able to get rid of someone like Lindsey Graham or someone like Susan Collins. And we saw in both cases, they failed. And in the case of Graham, they piled in tens of millions of dollars uh, against him. And he is someone who is, you know, a pretty dodgy character who sort of was on the record very plainly saying that if they tried to appoint a Supreme Court justice in the last year of a Trump campaign after the primaries, he would vote against it and uh, immediately went back on his word. Uh, yet they still couldn't unseat him. So I think there was a little bit of over-optimism from a lot of people in the Democrat camp. Uh, and there was also a bit of down-the-ticket lack of enthusiasm about Biden. I mean, Biden is not Trump, but... He wasn't providing a vision of America uh, that sort of stood on its own two legs. Uh, you know, you don't win votes by being against something. You win votes by being for something. At least that's sort of the conventional wisdom. Okay. So you guys both think in a sense that, uh, you know, by extension, really, um, you would expect that uh, a more sort of I, I don't know how to put it, a candidate that would have had a, a larger in, impact, so to speak, a more mobilizing force in the, in, in, you know, on, the, on the side of the Democrats, uh, would have won even higher uh, share of the popular vote then. And uh, that kind of candidate would have made sure that there is the trifecta. Is that what you guys are trying to say? I think um, when you look at some of the House results, there's at least three people, candidates from, for the Democrats, from the brand new Congress uh, that have won seats. And I, I think that probably plays to the point that Kamala Harris was far too conservative a Democrat to be running with a conservative Democrat presidential candidate. And that, that there could have been possibilities of mobilizing, having a program for working people more, working class people, who by and large, particularly white working class people have stuck by uh, President Trump on this occasion as well. So, and I wonder whether too strong a focus on identity politics uh, for the Democratic Party uh, has actually not helped them to get into those kinds of areas uh, of the electorate and give them hope that the Democratic Party will do something more. Um, yeah, so true, I think it's probably disappointing in the big picture and it suggests that going forward, if 
if what we think is going to happen happens, uh, Biden is going to find it very difficult to govern uh, successfully and put forth on any kind of radical program on the basis that they don't really have that mandate mandate fully. Um, and he may resort in the, in the end to um, executive orders uh, on an even grander scale if he wants to do anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't see this as a great night for the Democrats, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, if Biden wins, and that is a big if right now, uh, based on the recounts, he is going to have an almost impossible time over the next four years uh, if he doesn't have the Senate with him. You know, there's going to be no Supreme Court reform. There's going to be no statehood for D.C. or Puerto Rico. So this, the, uh, the Senate will remain in Republican hands. It's going to be very difficult to get an adequate stimulus bill uh, to deal with the uh, impact of coronavirus. And he's going to be sitting in the wreckage of four years of Donald Trump. And he's going to have to own that two years down the line when they have the uh, midterms. Uh, it's traditionally very difficult for the incumbent president's party, which means perhaps an even redder Senate. And uh, it will just be Joe Biden, king of the ashes, essentially, of the, of the Trump administration. Um, I, I, I feel like a huge downer saying this, but this is, I don't think people have appreciated quite how bad this night has been for the Democratic Party. And uh, it's going to become evident over the next 18 months, I think. Yeah, can I just add a little bit to that? I think, I think David is right. I think his analysis is right. And I think I don't think Donald Trump is going to necessarily disappear from the political scene. And there's even talk that he may return in 2024 uh, to, to claim his second, second term. But I think symbolically, I think the fact of a mobilized electorate, uh, divided and polarized as it is, but a, a, a victory for Biden, if it comes through, I think symbolically is very important. It does sort of, it does draw a line you know, underneath um, and between the two Americas. And it says that there is a very large proportion of the population which doesn't buy that program and wants it to go. And the fact of the mobilization of people uh, was very large scale. So I think the, it is symbolically important, but in terms of governance, if Biden governs like most democratic presidents is looking over the, his shoulder at the right, I think we're in for preparing the ground for 2024 uh, you know, kind of a big red wave. Um, and so that, if you like, the kind of underlying crisis of American, of the American political system of elite legitimacy and so on, of party polity, I think is still there. Uh, we're kind of biding, biding our time. <laughs> All right, you guys, thank you. Um, so I think, I think your statements about sort of your analysis of the, the popular vote, the sort of the levels of support that different candidates, the two candidates were able to, to, to mobilize, uh, reflects, interestingly, reflects a, um, the, um, the sort of the broader debate uh, about the two parties. And it seems that even though Biden was able to win the popular vote, there's much, much more soul searching going on, uh, you know, for, on behalf of or for the uh, the, the Democrats and as for the Republican Party, it seems to me that despite the uh, Biden's win with respect to the popular vote, um, uh, people tend to believe that um, Trumpism uh, has a great future and seems to be sort of what the Republican Party needs to continue to embrace, and that Trumpism without Trump uh, is, is sort of the, the thing that, that, that will sort of guide the, Dem the, the Republicans into the future, whereas the Democrats seem to be stuck 
uh, on um, sort of that notion of the sort of the, the majority of the minorities, which was sort of the, the Obama um, approach, and then also sort of not so successful anymore the Clinton approach. Um, so, is this is this what we're gonna gonna be seeing the the, the Republicans becoming a multiracial working class infused party? Uh, Trump is without Trump, um, and the, the the Democrats um suffering. Mm. Well, I mean, I was just reading something today, Constantine, that said that it's very unlikely that the, the Republican leadership is going to disown Trump if Trump loses. That he basically has a loyalty, which is unprecedented in party political history, of 85 to 90 percent of Republican voters loyal, loyal as anything. And he's even mobilized more people in already red states to vote for him. That all goes very well for any Trumpists who are not Donald Trump and for Donald Trump who wants to continue with his Trumpism in another forum, like a TV, some sort of TV affiliation where he, he does his on TV rallies or face-to-face -face rallies and carries on. He's got a little dynasty of family types who are in the wings and then there's a number of others too. So I think that remains important. Now, whether that is going to continue to remain important, say, in three elections time, say, in, in, in the 2030s, given the demographic shifts which are going on, the aging of the, of the white voter, the affluent white voter, and so on. So I think there'll be a, some sort of a correction, but at the moment, that uh, kind of the tail, which sees a loss, a loss of culture, a loss of power, loss of influence, in a majority-minority uh, society, I think that that tale has got still a lot of, if you like, a sting in it, and I think he is able to mobilize it. The fact that he's been able to mobilize it in a pandemic, when 232,000 people have died, and the areas in which he seems to have increased his vote uh, include the Midwest and Rust Belt areas as well, it suggests there's a kind of there's something way above material factors which are at play here. You know, uh, I can't remember the name of the first name, but Rodiger, David Rodiger maybe wrote a book ages ago called The Wages of Whiteness, a kind of psychological wage, which is kind of uh, achieved by knowing that you're in this kind of relatively superior group, but you may be under pressure. And I just wonder the psychological benefits of Trump playing on that, on those anxieties and fears uh, of loss maybe galvanizing more people than material return or material reward alone. And I yeah. think we've seen it under Obama with African-American voters getting very little in return materially from his two terms, yet turning out in their 90 percentile uh, areas on two occasions. So maybe we shouldn't be so surprised to see that at this particular time as well. And working in, for the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big takeaways from last night is that Trumpism's not going anywhere. Uh, I mean, in terms of Republican soul searching, I, you have to have a soul to search, I would say. And uh, the Republicans are wedded now to an emergent, well, not emergent, I mean, this has been around forever, but white identity politics. This is the key narrative that I think is coming out of this election, is that American politics for the foreseeable future is going to be the story of white identity politics, white working class politics. 
And this is me being polite about it. You know, if I want to call it what it is, this is white supremacy. It is at the core of the Republican message. And it might be slightly more polished than, you know, the Ku Klux Klan. But we're going to see a debate in the Republican Party around things like retracting birthright citizenship, restricting immigration, even more voter suppression uh, as a way of maintaining America as a bastion of uh, white a white identitarian nation. And this is what I think is going to come out of Trumpism. And it's dangerous. I mean, this but, is... But, hmm? yeah, but everyone knows that there's not enough white people and there's, uh, there's not, uh, the institutions are not as biased as they, as they would have to be to sort of make up for sort of the, the, the demographic change. So um, are the Latinos that, you know, this is sort of another question, the, the Latinos that supported Trump in, uh, in various places, the different types of Latino groups, um, are, are they going to be able to sort of be added to that coalition, David? You know, are they going to make up that, uh, uh, that, um, that sort of the, the declining number of, of, of white people and uh, uh, without sort of changing much about the white supremacy message? Yeah, look, I think that there's... What's going to happen? Yeah, look, there's something to be said for, you know, Gramsci's idea of hegemony, right? And this idea that there will be people who will buy into narratives that play against their interests. And this will, you know, perhaps incorporate people in the Latino group. I mean, one of the other sort of big messages out of this night is that there is no blanket category of Latino in America or really any monolithic ethnic group. And I know I just said this about white identity politics, but specifically looking at minorities, there are different interests. Cubans in Miami have a very different interest uh, than Puerto Ricans in New York City, for example. And this is something that I think perhaps pollsters are going to have to pay a little bit more attention to. Now, whether they can be brought into a Republican coalition, I mean, maybe they might be able to, but I think one of the most dangerous things is that there is going to be a block in American politics who are decidedly anti-democratic. Right. And I don't mean against the Democratic Party, I mean against democracy. And you can see it right now with Trump tweeting. Now, you know, the first tweet he had in about 12 hours today was stop the count. Right. This is an anti-democratic movement in American politics that, you know, let's say only a third of Trump's voters are these dyed in the wool uh, authoritarians. That's still 20 million people. Right. That is a huge chunk of the American population who doesn't just view voting as being a, a right that everyone has, they view that as a threat to their status in their country. And that is a fissure in politics that can produce dangerous outcomes. You know, that's the, what leads to terrorism or that's what leads to civil war. And that's me being a little bit alarmist. I will fully admit that. But I don't think we do ourselves any favors by trying to dismiss this incredibly radical shift in right-wing politics in America that's come out of the past four years. I think I'll just be, that's really interesting, um, interesting points there, David. Um, I think one thing is there's an anti-socialist, there's an anti-socialist plank in the narrative of the Trump campaign. It was frightening people with the idea of socialism and the far left and the far left and Antifa taking over the streets and therefore a kind of a anti-police and anti-law and order, kind of a, a politics of fear, if you like, which, is, which can be very powerful. It can kind of keep people in. And that was accompanied with sort of the idea of higher taxation uh, by, the, 
by the Biden, uh, by a Biden administration as well. But I think the other thing is that if you, when you look at the, the kind of work that uh, the, the team at Harvard under Theda Scotchpole assembled, a shifting the political terrain uh, project, which looked at the way in which the billionaire donors, for example, uh, created uh, sort of astroturf type groups uh, right across the United States at the kind of so-called grassroots level in order to influence politics from the ground upwards uh, and thereby effectively pushed the Republican candidates far further to the right than actually is the Republican electorate. Which is to say that you have a set of ideas when Republican voters are polled on their ideas about what should be, what is reasonable and so on in healthcare or whatever, inequality, poverty, welfare and so on. They're not as right wing as their representatives are. And that, if you like, is a kind of big institutional shift from around the early part of the, say, 2004-05 through to the period of the Tea Party and beyond. Mm -hmm. So I'm not entirely sure that the Republican Party, through its representatives and what they say, are actually fully reflective of what the underlying Republican electorate actually truly say. They may be more afraid of the Democrats, but I'm not sure that their Republican representatives are truly representative of what that mass believes. Because when we look in, in the 2016 campaign, and to some extent in this one as well, one big thing of it, about it really was the corruption of the two big parties' leaderships and how they basically lost touch with ordinary people's lives and how they have to live and how, how few life chances they appear to have. It's a kind of populist version of a class-based, working class-based message. And what that strikes me as that when I, when I see those kinds of the alliance of elite, elite leadership with a populist message, which focuses uh, against elites and for ordinary people, it just reminds me of the, you know, what I said last time, the work by Paxton uh, on anatomy of fascism, that they carry this baggage of working class rights, voters and interests around, but actually they end up benefiting far more than anybody else, the people from their own class and the classes who tend to provide the large donations to them. So, so I, I still see in the kind of going forward, when, when the US finally has a cold shower, perhaps, and you know, I'm reading this great book by Julia Rose Kraut called uh, The Threat of Dissent. It starts in the 1790s, and it literally is about extreme right-wing suppression of ideology, ideological dissent, immigrants, particularly among immigrants and naturalized people, and basically deporting them, uh, silencing them, and so on. And, the US comes goes through these cycles where you think what the what on earth is going on here in this land but then it also appears to correct itself things shift and change maybe the underlying conditions shift and change that creates uh, political opportunities for different kinds of uh, movements so I, I haven't lost faith in the US actually I'm quite interested in the fact that they they have these cyclical movement what appear to be cyclical movements uh, of kind of intense violation of what you could normal democratic constitutional uh, and, and, and rights followed by expansions of them but never the disappearance of the movements which were in charge 
of um, denying people rights in various ways. But the deep structures, the, the staffing of some of those deeper structures by different people with different ideas who, who you then use discretion. And even the Supreme Court uh, uh, kind of looking at the overall political environment with which they're operating, therefore interpreting rules and laws differently. It seems to, it does seem to do the trick over time. As someone who has great faith in Republican systems of government and spent a lot of time writing about them, I certainly hope you're right. But I think, you know, people viewed uh, the first Trump term as being this stress test for the guardrails of the Republic, right? Mm. And what people, I think, sometimes don't appreciate enough is that the hits that the uh, Republic has been taking over the past four years, and looks like it will take another big one, are distorting uh, the guardrails and perhaps breaking through them. Uh, I mean, I certainly hope that, uh, that American, American democracy will reassert itself, but I feel like this is, I, I'm trying to think of a comparable challenge uh, that America faced. And I mean, perhaps the depression was one, but the depression led to sort of a concentration of power in the White House, the New Deal, uh, an accommodation between capitalism and socialism in American politics. And Trump seems to be, you know, it's almost like if Lindbergh became mm. the, uh, mm. became the um, president in the 1930s and is mm. steering America towards a more, mm. you know, fascist uh, solution mm. to its social crisis. Mm. Uh, you know, we, ha we have this new Lindbergh and Trump, but where's, where's the new FDR? Mm. Because I don't mm. think Joe Biden's it. I, I think, I think, the 1930s is probably not not the decade I would select for this particular part of our discussion. I think the 1950s might be, um, or the 1920s, the periods just before the Depression and just before the Great Society, if you like. Right. And I think that's what kind of suggests that there are these sort of uh, ups and downs. Let's not call them cycles because that suggests mm. re repetition. But when you have the McCarthyite 1950s, when you have uh, people basically fired from the federal, federal uh, jobs for disloyalty, uh, you've got the Supreme Court, you know, kind of uh, uh, acting in a very draconian way. You've got various kind of laws, Smith Act and Walter McCarran Act. Uh, you've got the McCarthyite hearings. You've got the House Un-American Activities Committee on the road right across the United States, Hollywood, 10 Communist Party people arrested and so on, people committing suicide. Mm. Uh, yet, and I think this is, this is interesting because in the 1930s, there was this kind of big progressive movements and so on, big rise of the Communist Party to a million members or something like that. But underlying it at the same time and never disappearing were the vestiges of the right, the Liberty League, mm -hmm. the people who called the White House, uh, Roosevelt and his wife and uh, Harry Hopkins and so on, the four communists who, who are running the United States, they never go away. They just can't, they just don't have as much influence because for whatever reason, they are out of sync with the way in which people are thinking or living or the, the way they define the situation. 1950s, again, you have this kind of fear and anxiety about the Soviet Union and communism and, and organized labor and so on. But at the same time, in that same period, you've got the Montgomery bus boycott and the, the rise of the civil rights movement, and then this explosion in the 60s, 
of what was kind of relatively repressed. And I think there are repressed and suppressed sort of grievances. And I think it's usually the an opportunity of some form. Yeah, both of you, you know, predicted a few days ago that there will be violence no matter who wins. Um, so right now it feels very calm. I mean, there's some people chanting count the vote and then the same guy, people are chanting don't count the vote in a different location, you know, depending on whether they're you know, ahead or behind. But there hasn't been any sign of really heated sort of demonstrations even or violence. So is this something that's going to happen once we have a winner, uh, you know, a likely winner? Or is, is this something that just is not going to happen and sort of contrary to what you guys expected? Yeah, it's interesting. I did. I did think there would be a bit more kind of mobilization uh, on election night. Of course, you did see in uh, New York and Washington D.C. and and some West Coast cities uh, various marches about the stealing of the election by the Trump campaign, and you didn't see the kind of armed militias at polling stations or near polling stations as people had feared. But I think this long drawn out process. Um, is, has the potential for mobilizing various kinds of forces, depending on which way the election goes. Uh, and the litigations announced uh, by the Trump campaign uh, could drag this out. Um, but, you know, all the forces, if you like, are still there. All those, the, the pandemic is still there. The, the police, uh, the protests against the police and so on are, are still there. I don't think even a Biden victory is going to put, send, pe send those people home because he wasn't responsible for bringing them out onto the street in the first place. And in fact, a Biden presidency, which is hamstrung by the Senate, uh, could actually uh, rile up the people who voted for him and the people further to the left even more because he's not going to be able to deliver too much. Uh, and on the right, yeah, they have been mobilized. I don't think they're necessarily going anywhere. Whether they feel as emboldened, uh, that'll be the kind of issue. But yeah, much less than than we had feared. I'm pleasantly surprised uh, that there hasn't been more violence in the streets. And perhaps this speaks to a, a deeper civic tradition in America about the peaceful transition of power and the sacrosanct nature of elections. Uh, but uh, in keeping with my rather gloomy disposition today, uh, I think America could be in a bit of a pressure cooker scenario at the moment. Uh, as we get closer to calling states, there might be even more desperation, especially coming out of the Trump White House. Uh, if we see that Pennsylvania is within a few thousand votes, mm. you know, who knows what happens, especially if Trump looks like he is going to outright refuse to concede at all and starts pushing this narrative that the election was stolen from him. Yeah, and I think I would just add, you know, when Fox News on election night called it, called Arizona for Biden, there was an immediate sort of series of attacks on, I mean, Fox has been as loyal as any TV station could possibly be to, to Donald Trump and helped him elevate him to the position that he got into. Uh, so, you know, there's a loyalty to Trump, which is going on here, and I think people are listening to him, and I think following their cues. I mean, I, the ironic thing might be that as he pushes his legal claims, and they go further up the chain of the courts, 
with the possibility of the Supreme Court, um, it, it, the ironic thing could be that the Supreme Court could be his his dominated Supreme Court could be the one which puts an end to to any legitimacy that he may have. Well, there is a there is a kind of tragic comedy sketch in my mind of January the twentieth or twenty uh, first or whatever it is of of two men on the podium. <laughs> fighting it out in that in that sort of considering that sort of fist fight on an open stage uh, you know who, so who's going to win or you know in other words actually you know more seriously um, who will be president uh, by the end of january uh, that is the, the the one prediction that everyone is really interested in at the end of the day right indigent who's going to be president end of january but from the stats that i've been kind of looking at on associated press website most of the day, things haven't moved on too much, but it seems to be, it's on a knife edge. Trump still has a, a narrow path, but it's unlikely. Um, so I would think that, I think Biden will probably be president. I would say that the odds seem to favor Joe Biden right now, but I also think it's far too early to count Trump out. I think Trump will attempt to use every trick in the book to stay in the White House. Uh, he has expressed very clearly uh, that he believes he's won, uh, you know, with that remarkable sort of 2, p or 2 a.m. Uh, press conference. Bush v. Gore uh, could happen again, and we could have Trump losing the popular vote by more than three million votes, but somehow retaining the presidency through the Electoral College. Uh, I think this is probably not going to happen, but I wouldn't be shocked if it did. My, my, my wig wouldn't fall off. Well, one thing that I, I would like to, um, to, to um, one issue that I would like to bring up to race um, is something that has always sort of surfaced in your statements. Uh, and it is something that we as political scientists should actually address. And that's the sort of the, the, the paucity of prediction, um, the, the, you know, in, <laughs> That uh, the you know that blaming of pollsters, blaming political observers, and sort of you know these are sort of both the modelers of uh, 538 and then the Economist, uh, as much as as the sort of the academic political scientists, they all get thrown into one bag. Mm -hmm. All these people that say something about politics and that sort of uh, have models and that make predictions. Um, actually, our predictions, you, your predictions were, were you know, were, were perfect. I mean, there's nothing that you guys didn't predict correctly, um, but there's this, there's this narrative, uh, there's this charge against uh, political observers that they're not very good at, at their job, apparently, because, well, again, even though they knew that in 2016, they underestimated, the pollsters underestimated um, the level of enthusiasm for Trump. Um, and they said, oh, we built this into our models. Uh, and now we have different, different weighting uh, for, uh, you know, non-college educated uh, working class whites. And, and we know what's going on. So, so don't worry, you know, we, if anything, we sort of, we overestimate the support for Trump. And again, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. So what does this tell us? You know, is this, what's, what's going on there in the jet? Well, I guess, you know, it's when, when maybe when science meets the human being, you know, obviously polling from 1935 when Gallup kind of made it into a much more scientific thing, it, it has great power. If you look at so many elections, so many, uh, you know, products which are based on marketing and 
knowledge of your of your market and so on you know the, the world the world economy the capitalist world economy operates effectively on kinds of poles so it does have great power but there's always a margin of error there's a margin of three to four percent the problem with the margin of three to four percent is that the that's about the margin where the sort of battleground states uh, are experiencing as well and it's it's difficult it's very difficult and we've talked about the volatility of politics particularly in the recent past but right across the world it's not easy uh, to to reach uh, all of those people and to see how they are changing as well in their in their attitude so you know i think the polls are very useful but maybe we can't take them uh, fully as uh, they're not iron laws that they're they're propounding there are tendencies and trends uh, snapshots at certain times and over time as well but i would still rather have those polls than not have anything else and they're not that inaccurate if you look at the bulk of the voters uh, they have kind of conformed given the sort of polarization moment, maybe uh, maybe that's a special factor, uh, which is diff more difficult to, to study and predict. One of my favorite things that was tweeted on election night came from Melvin Rogers, who's a, an associate professor at Brown. And he tweeted that it looks like we need to have more academic job openings in race and American politics and not in quantitative methods. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that there is a bit of wisdom there, that there is sort of our, our discipline of political science, you know, there are many ways that you can look at a problem. And oftentimes we overemphasize the quant side of it. And this might just be my bias as a political philosopher. Uh, but I do think that, you know, we do miss something on occasion by looking too much at sort of statistical pictures. Now, I agree completely with energy that we are much better off having these sort of pictures of American politics. And in defense of people like Nate Silver, right? He wasn't that off. You know, he was very, very clear that Trump had a 10% chance of winning, which was statistically a very significant chance of winning. Uh, so they're getting dragged a little bit in the media, but uh, you know, they were very straightforward, I think, in, in, in admitting there could be a, a voting error or a, or a polling error and uh, that they, clearly were warning people about the chances of this. And they were also very clear that if there was a 2016 style voting error in favor of Trump, then Biden still had a very good shot of winning, a much better shot of winning than Hillary Clinton did based on the polls that they were looking at. So while it wasn't perfect, I don't think it was a, a bad night or a, a sort of a, a death blow to Poland. But I do think that perhaps we may want to be looking more at some of the qualitative sides of political science when we're looking at uh, when we're looking at American politics because you know why why use one lens to look at a problem when you have several different uh, sort of spectrums of political analysis available yeah so the the marriage of uh, quantitative political science and uh, APD American political development I mean I think that's a wonderful wedding and then I'm all, all for that I think it's a it's the right combination of those approaches I totally agree with you um, you know, what I was thinking, and I want to add a little bit to this, and then sort of a little, bit, a little bit of a different point, but it also has something to do with the question of how we talk about politics, how we talk about political parties, how we talk about elections. 
And I think you've already made uh, in, throughout this conversation a few points um, that sort of were about sort of the limits of sort of the demographic approach to dissecting the electorate. Uh, and I think that's a very, very important point. You know, David said that, oh, yeah, there's these different kinds of Latinos. You know, don't call them Latinos. Um, mm -hmm. um, we talked about sort of we were struggling about the sort of the, the Hispanic working class supporters of Trump. And, and uh, so it, it seems to me that there is a limit to uh, how much we can sort of rely on sort of demographic, especially race, but also class, in order to describe the electorate. And, and, and this to me is, is a very, very crucial lesson. Now, interestingly, um, in, in America, we're still talking more about class and, and, and demographics than maybe in other countries. Uh, uh, and that's, of course, because race is such a crucial determinant of, of the vote, has been such a crucial determinant of the vote. And African-Americans, by and large, are, um, you know, being African-American is like, is, is a very strong predictor of, of, of voting. But then that's only 12% of the electorate. And by and large, I think that um, we need to be more careful in sort of having these broad sweeping arguments about which demographic groups sort of go with uh, which political party. And, and this is, if anything, uh, and this is why that wedding between historical perspective and qualitative political science is so great. If we look at the analysis of voting patterns in the past 40, 50 years, it is clear that the effect of these demographic features on voting behavior has declined massively. Um, First of all, second of all, if we look at the, the, the academic analyses of the Trump vote in 2016, um, the, 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 the strongest conclusion from that is that what predicted the Trump vote were authoritarian values. It wasn't demographics, it was whether you were an authoritarian, right? And uh, that was the strongest predictor of the Trump vote. Populism, right, pop, right wing populism in Western Europe, the strongest predictor of that is authoritarian values, uh, racism, values, not demographics. Um, and so I think we need to learn to talk about politics um, and to analyze elections in a way that moves beyond this, this notion that there are demographic groups who sort of go with this or that candidate or with this or that party. And I think that's, a, that's I think, a lesson that, 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 is, that is really, really important. Um, and, and, and it's become so obvious because the reality of that has changed so much. But you know, you look at the, 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 the pundits and they still talk about uh, the elections as if these demographic groups were still monolithic voting blocks, not just Hispanics, none of these groups really is anymore. And that's only one side, uh, uh, the analytical side. On the, uh, on the strategic side, I think parties are making the same mistake to some extent. You know, they do follow this logic of trying to cater to different social groups. And this is something that David and I and Lise Butler talked about a few episodes back in this podcast. Um, we talked about social democracy and the future of the center right, or the, the center right, I'm sorry, and the future of the, the center left and the left uh, in, 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 uh, in European politics and beyond. And I think the lesson that we sort of, that I think should be, should be, should be drawn from that, which is that we need to turn uh, center-left parties into parties of values rather than parties that try to cater to different social groups. I think that's the lesson. Um, and I was skeptical whether it applies to America as much as it does to European countries because race is such a dominant factor. But I think one lesson from this election is that 
if anything, it has become less monolithic uh, uh, in terms of social demographics. If anything, values are even more important in predicting vote choices. And I think what that means for the Democratic Party is that they need to become a party of values, just like I think social democratic parties in Britain and Germany and Western Europe need to become parties of values rather than parties that see themselves as representatives of different ill-defined social groups. I think that's a really astute observation, Constantine, especially around uh, sort of these schisms or not, these divisions in political bodies around authoritarianism, because I think that's really very difficult for the media to talk about. It's very difficult for our ordinary political discourse to, to speak to. You know, in a political science department, you can identify someone with authoritarian values pretty neutrally, right? Uh, you know, if they check a few boxes, then we can say these people are authoritarians. Now, if you start reporting that on CNN, people are going to get very shirty, uh, but this needs to be talked about. Right. I know there needs to be a recognition that there is a growing population in Western demo Western democracies who are not interested in democracy, particularly uh, unless it's delivering the politics that they want. Uh, they, they view democracy as being transactional. Uh, if it can deliver them the policies that they want, then it's fine. But if they can get their policies another way, then they'll probably go for that other way. And uh, having that conversation outside of the lecture hall. I think it's going to be very challenging. And I think it's one of the big challenges for democratic culture at this moment. Uh, so I, I, I agree with you 100% on what you're saying. Well, there certainly is a very important psychological component in political messaging, political, uh, yeah, political communication. Um, and I think that kind of psychological wage, which I was referring to earlier on, which, which rises above the material, it almost becomes a material force because the power of that message is so great. You know, Booker T. Washington a long time ago said something like, the white man can't keep the black man in the gutter without getting down in, in there with him. That is, you're willing to live in the gutter yourself just above the person whose head you got your foot on, but you're still in the gutter. And that doesn't give you anything. I mean, looking at it from outside, your life is horrible, you're in the sewer. But it appears to do something for the person in that position. And I think that politics, that sort of message, it plays very, very well. And maybe it plays very more powerfully in the United States than possibly elsewhere, that psychological wage. I think at the, at the most fundamental level, it's about motive. It's about motivation. It's about the question, why are you engaged with politics in the first place? So what does it give you? And I think Indajit, that's why this was such a sort of, you put it very beautifully there. It's uh, also early on when you spoke, uh, spoke to that uh, topic, it's, uh, it's not about material questions. Um, and I, I think, you know, this is even beyond the question of are people sort of, do they vote based on values or material interests? It's an even more fundamental question as to why do people engage with politics? Do they engage with politics because they, they hope to get something material out of there. This is how we saw politics in the, in the post-World War II era, right? You know, you vote to have lower taxes or to, you know, maybe a sort of lower insurance premiums and this and that, and, you know, and uh, then you vote a party that sort of does, it's this distributional logic of politics, right? And there can be compromises to that um, if there's enough resources to distribute. But what you're saying is, and I, I totally agree with that, is 
that there is a different kind of uh, a different logic of politics, an identity logic, uh, mm. sort of a, a self-preservation, a self-affirmation logic mm. to politics, um, where you need the other uh, mm. to feel superior, um, where you, politics is not about getting stuff that you know allows you to sort of live a good life. Um, mm. It's about making yourself feel better than someone else. It's about Darwinism. It's about winning. And again, this is something actually that made you know last time we we, we talked before the election, we we had this chat about populism and whether there's left and right wing populism and whatnot. And you know what? I still think there's left wing populism. But uh, what I learned from your statement is is twofold. First of all, one thing that you said was well, uh, right wing populists are different from you know what you might want to call left populists or not because they talk about the working men but the policies that they do are very different and i think that's a very good and important way to think about it and another uh, thing is uh, and this is sort of what i was thinking is so it's that it's that that social darwinism um, uh, that is that is it's really part of the right populist message and that also helped me to square that notion that donald trump is this sort of you know, people think of him as the successful, like really cold-blooded businessman, and and he he lived, he grew up in New York in a very different environment than all the people who go out on the street for him and vote for him, and, and you know, willing to demonstrate, maybe even die for him to some extent. Um, and I think that that that's because um, he speaks to their Darwinism, to their sort of he, he awakens, he triggers some sort of social Darwinistic impulse, and they see him. Uh, as sort of the, the sort of the the epitome of someone who's who's been successful and that struggle for recognition and survival, um, and they want to have a little bit of that sort of of that sort of of that emotional cake. They want to have a slice of that emotional cake too. And anyway, so uh, this is something that, that got me to think when we had this conversation the last time. And, and I think in this election, um, uh, that has I think it has it has that has the this election is evidence for that. For the fact that this is a very, very powerful mechanism. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there is something to the analysis of saying a lot of Trump's voters are not motivated by winning, but making someone else lose, right? It is that holding down the other guy in the gutter. And this does seem to be getting people out to vote. You know, 68 million people voted for Donald Trump. That's 68 million people voting to hold other people down in the gutter, which is pretty incredible. Incredible when you think about it. It's also terribly depressing, uh, but it mm. seems to be a, a psychological engine for a lot of a lot of voters across the world right now. You know, not just in America. Um, I think, yeah, no. I, so in a sense, we're just sort of still too close to the election for you know all these issues that have to do with the sort of the question of violence, uh, what kind of legal acrobatics are going to take place. Uh, how is this going to play out? Um, so I think we just need a few more days to, to see what's happening. And, you know. A big thanks to Inderjeet Parmar for joining us today. You can follow him on Twitter at US Empire. And thank you for listening to the City Politics podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at The City Politics, and you can still have your voice heard, at least with me, by writing a review or giving us a like on whatever podcatcher you're listening to this on. Thanks to Cambo for the music and to our producer, Atina Dimitrova. Take care, everyone.